Uh, we, we come this morning and we gather together this morning and, and we come burdened with all kinds of uh, cares and concerns and fears. And if the risen Lord Jesus were to suddenly show up physically this morning, right here, and He came up on this platform and He had a message for you about the implications of His resurrection, what word would He give to you this morning? What word would He have for Harbin's church? In the account that we're about to read, we have an example of Jesus doing this very thing. In John chapter 20, we have a gathering of believers, and they are weighed down with concerns and with fears and anxieties, and Jesus shows up in their midst physically, and He opens His mouth to speak. And if you were there in that room, in that moment, and somebody that you knew who was just hours ago a corpse suddenly shows up in the middle of your meeting and has a message for you, would you not hang on His every word? You might be sitting there thinking, well, well, Jesus, well, sure, He would speak to them, those original disciples, but He wouldn't speak to me. I, I'm a mess. I'm a failure. I, I've sinned. I, I've blown it yet again. I'm, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm a loser. What would Jesus have to do with me? But we need to recognize this morning that these people whom Jesus is speaking to in John 20 are just like you. Uh, they, they, are, they are losers. They, they aren't people on a higher plane of spirituality than us regular people. Uh, they are regular people. In fact, who, regular people who had just experienced significant, disastrous spiritual and moral failures in their lives. And it is in the wake of our own struggles and our own failures that Jesus is in our midst this morning as His presence invades any group of believers who are gathered together. And, and these words of Jesus in John 20 are not just for them back then, they're for us right now. And so, what does He have to say? What does He have to say to you? Well, let's find out. Please stand with me now, out of honor and reverence, for the readings, reading of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 19. Now, remember, the, the words that we're reading here together have the exact same authority as if Jesus Christ were standing here in the flesh on this platform speaking to you. These are His words. John chapter 20, starting verse 19. The Holy Spirit says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Father, as we approach Your holy and inspired Word this morning, I pray that You would help us to listen with attentive ears 
and that you would help us to perceive and understand what the Holy Spirit would have to say to this church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this morning in our text, we find that Jesus encourages his distressed disciples in several ways. Uh, First, we see him do it by proclaiming his peace, proclaiming his peace. Verse 19 says that the disciples are gathered together on Sunday evening. Now, some people, might, some people think that this is the beginning of the church gathering on Sunday. Could be. But I don't think what's going on here is exactly a worship service. A worship service is a celebration of the resurrection. That's not what's happening here. What we see here is not a celebration. We see self-preservation. Uh, they've heard about the empty tomb, uh, but it's evident that they don't know quite what to make of all of this because they're hiding. And verse 19 says the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. They're terrified. The people who engineered the murder of Jesus are still out there, and they know who we are. They probably even know our names. And it's only a matter of time until we're next. Lock the doors until we can figure out how to slip out of town. Not only are they in turmoil because of outward enemies, but surely their emotions inwardly are a mess because of what just happened in their own midst this weekend, this past, that that past weekend, a weekend which turned out to be a complete and utter spiritual train wreck for the disciples. Uh, Think about that Thursday night when Jesus was betrayed in his moment of greatest trial. How are the disciples doing? They were completely self-absorbed. They were arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Uh, They were refusing to serve one another through washing one another's feet, so Jesus had to do it. They're bragging about how awesome they are and how they will never forsake Jesus, and they'd even die for Him. And when Jesus is later on feeling anguish in His soul due to the coming cross, they can't even pray alongside of Jesus. They fall asleep. And when the Roman legionnaires come to arrest Jesus, they all scatter, and they leave him alone. And Peter, the leader of the group, on the heels of his boast that he would die for Jesus, he won't even live for him. When questioned about his relationship to Jesus, Peter lies. Peter distances himself from Jesus. And how about at the cross? At the cross, no one is to be seen. Well, John finally comes out of, of hiding, and there, and there are a couple of bolder women there to watch Jesus hang, but everyone else is AWOL. That weekend, the faith and the courage and the conviction and the loyalty of these men completely collapsed like a house of cards. It's about as bad as a weekend spiritually as you can get. So if you've had a bad spiritual weekend, I'm glad you're here. It is into this context that the resurrected Jesus shows up. And these wayward disciples, they have every reason to believe that He is showing up with a whip to chastise them, to rebuke them, to punish them, to condemn them for their past failure and their present fear. But He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus does something that He is so apt to do, He shocks us. Verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
The very first words out of his mouth are not words of condemnation. They are words of peace. Peace be with you. He says it twice just to get the point across. The Hebrew equivalent is shalom alechem. The word shalom is loaded with theological meaning. Uh, Shalom in its richest sense has to do with an experience of of wholeness and peace that comes with being in right relationship to God. It's it's like the Hebrew way of saying, it is well with my soul. And and to say that to someone else is like giving them a benediction, a a blessing, uh, expressing a desire for them to experience the peace of God in its fullness. What good news (laughs) this must have been to these battered, discouraged guilt-laden, fearful disciples, he says to them, be at peace. Don't worry about God's anger and wrath and condemnation. Enjoy God's peace. Enjoy God's favor because it is well with your soul. He declares to them peace the first time. And then in verse 20, when he had said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Jesus is linking His blessing of peace with showing them the nail scars in His hands and the marks of that spear thrust in His side. And is it not fascinating that Jesus, who has just experienced the ultimate healing, resurrection from the dead, He's chosen to leave the scars of His piercing in His body. He didn't have to do that. If he can raise himself from the grave, he can repair skin tissue. (laughs) He can repair all of it. But he doesn't do that. Jesus says, peace be to you, and he shows them the scars. Because the display of his scarred flesh is not not just evidence that the crucified Jesus has been raised. It's also showing them that this peace, this shalom that Jesus is bestowing upon them did not come cheap. The whole reason why Jesus was nailed to the cross in the first place was because due to our sin and our hostility to God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Romans 1.18. Sin has separated and alienated man from God. And if man and God are going to be reconciled, if peace is going to happen, then sin has to be dealt with. And it's at the cross where Jesus deals with it. As he hangs there, Jesus is absorbing the fullness of God's anger and wrath towards sinners, so that any sinner who by faith receives Jesus' payment for sins will be saved. For, as we love to sing, on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And now that the wrath of God has been satisfied, Jesus can turn to Peter and to James, and to John, and to every believing sinner in this room this morning, and he can say those beautiful words to you, peace be with you. You, brother, you, sister, can rest assured that God is no longer angry with you. His anger and his wrath was fully spent on Jesus, and there remains no more wrath left for you. I wonder if you know the peace of God this morning. You know, I don't think that there is anything that wrecks as much havoc on our minds and in our souls as a conscience that is guilty. When you know that you've done wrong 
and you know that you are guilty, and, and, and you know that God knows, because you may have hidden your sins from everyone else, but God knows, and in your mind, there is anything but peace. You ever been that, in that situation? And you feel the weight of a guilty conscience so heavy that it feels like you're about to be physically crushed by it. And trying to be good, that doesn't give you peace because you're not good. And you know it. That's why you feel guilty in the first place. Being religious won't give you peace. Religion can't change the the bad things you've already done or fix the sin that is still in your heart. It will not ultimately deal with that guilty conscience. So I want to encourage you. I want to plead with you. Uh, By faith, take that guilt, take that shame, uh, take that sin to the foot of the cross and trust in the Lord Jesus' payment for your sins. The Apostle Paul writes this glorious thing in Romans 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this proclamation of peace is not just good news for that brand new believer coming to Christ for the first time. It's good news for the seasoned yet struggling disciple. You know, I I didn't realize this when I first became a Christian, and now I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been ministering to people a long time, ministering to fellow Christians for a long time. And and I, I did not know how much, like, people who've been believers forever need the gospel. I used to think that the gospel was just for something for lost people. And you, and you give that to them, and, and they get saved, and you move on to deeper things and better things. Better things? Seriously? How stupid was I? No, no, no. The seasoned veteran Christian needs the gospel just as much as that baby Christian and just as much as that lost person because we still struggle with sin, don't we? And we know, we know what it feels like to, to, to feel the, 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 the weight of what we have done. And there are Christians that are living in agony right now. I, I talk to them on a regular basis, living in agony because they, are, they, they have forgotten what has saved them in the first place. And they are refusing, or they don't realize that they still need to continuously bring everything to the foot of the cross to be free from that sense of guilt and, and shame and fear. Maybe you can identify with these disciples in John chapter 20. You love Jesus so much, and yet you've fallen so low, and you think, I can't believe it. I've done it again. I failed again. And you're discouraged, and you're fearful, and you're troubled, and you're guilt-laden, and you're wondering if God's going to cast you out. And if that's you, I want you to remember the nail-scarred hands. I want you to remember that Jesus' message to you this morning is a message of peace. Peace be with you. And to the degree that you realize and understand and internalize that truth, that there is peace between you and God, uh, is the degree that you can experience peace in the middle of every other area of your life even during times of uncertainty and trouble and suffering. One of the last things that Jesus said to His disciples before His crucifixion had to do with peace. In chapter 16, Jesus tells His disciples, I have said these things to you that in Me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. 
Yes, there's tribulation in the world. Uh, Yes, there is danger. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, there's suffering. But Jesus isn't a victim who has been overcome by the world. He is a victor. He overcomes the world, and Jesus proves it by getting up off that stone slab his corpse has been on for three days, by getting out of a sealed tomb, by getting into a locked room with them, and standing in their midst, alive and well. He overcomes the world. And so in him, the disciples can be at peace in in any situation, in any circumstance. And we begin to see the disciples now, they're starting to get that. Because after Jesus declares to them peace, and after he shows them his scars, proving that he has earned them peace with God, it says at the end of verse 20, then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. You see what's happening here? The light bulbs are starting to go off. And suddenly, where there was once fearfulness and anxiety, there is now joy and gladness. Now, now why is that? What's changed? The murderous Jewish authorities are still out there. That hasn't changed. Uh, For all they knew, the the authorities were even now hunting them and, and going from house to house. Perhaps they were even outside the door. That hadn't changed. It hadn't changed that their lives were in danger. It hadn't changed that they were a, still a small, weak band that had no strength in and of themselves to withstand the power of Rome. Uh, they, they, they knew difficult days were still ahead, as Jesus promised. Those circumstances haven't changed. And yet now, they're glad. Why? Because their eyes are on Jesus, the one who has overcome A.W. Pink writes that there are many Christians who suppose that they cannot rejoice while they remain in circumstances of sorrow. What a mistake. Observe that Christ did not change the circumstances of these disciples, but Christ drew out their hearts unto Himself and thus raised them above their circumstances. That's an important lesson. Uh, We tend to think, don't we, that what we, really need to, what we really need to happen for us to experience peace is for our circumstances to change, right? That's what we normally think. Uh, if only this hadn't happened. Uh, if only I wasn't thrown this curveball. Uh, if only this situation could be different. But that's not our biggest need. Our biggest need is not a change of circumstances. The need is to see our circumstances in light of the reality of the risen Christ. And that changes everything. But, but not just that he has risen and overcome the world. It's more than that. Those scars of Jesus serve as a witness of his sacrificial love, and they are the evidence that Jesus is not just with them, but even better, that Jesus is for them. And this point should not be lost on us. Because many Christians struggle with wondering whether or not God is actually for them. Whether God is on their side. I don't doubt that God is with them. Yeah, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But they doubt whether God's on their side. And there's some Christians that think, well, well, uh, well if I totally trust God or commit my way to Him, He's going to do something bad to me. Uh, he's going to take away something that I want. Uh, he's going to hurt me. How, how, how scared are you to, to pray the prayer? Well, God, just, you know, 
work in my life and, and do whatever it takes to get me close to you no matter what. How many of you are scared to pray that? That says more about you than it does about God. It says more about me than it does about God. We have a hard time really trusting Him, that He is for us, and that He's, that he's out for our good and our, our, our best interests. Maybe you're like that. You struggle this morning. You don't doubt His power. You don't doubt His sovereignty. But you wonder if He's really for you. And if you're struggling with that, what a miserable place that is to be, isn't it? Isn't it miserable to wonder whether or not God is for you and on your side? What incredible insecurity that brings. Because to doubt that God is for you inevitably means that you will not experience peace in your life. You will always be worried. You will always be anxious. You will always be suspicious of what God is doing, looking over your shoulder, never able to truly rest and relax and be at peace because you think God is out to get you. And yet the nailed, scarred hands of Jesus are a reminder that he was offered up as a sacrifice for you precisely because God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? To have the assurance that God is for you will totally change your life. Uh, The prophet Isaiah picks up on this when he writes of God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. If we know that God is for us, then we can trust God. And if we trust God, that leads to peace as our mind is stayed on Him and our thoughts become dominated not by our fearful circumstances and not by our fleshly thoughts and opinions, but, by, but, but is dominated by the one who is Lord over the circumstances, the Lord who is, who is for you. And so these disciples, upon seeing the Lord in their midst, were glad. And in the days ahead, through much danger much sorrow and tears, much affliction, even persecution, and even, in many cases, martyrdom, they nevertheless enjoyed God's peace because they knew that God was for them. That is the difference maker. They knew that God was for them because Jesus died for them, and He has the scars to prove it. And Jesus is here in our midst this morning. And His word for you in the middle of your cares and your concerns and your anxieties is shalom alakim. Peace be with you. But Jesus doesn't just proclaim His peace. Uh, We see Him also uh, providing a purpose. Providing a purpose. In verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus gives these disciples... He gives Harbin's church this morning a purpose, a reason for living. Uh, There's a reason why when you got saved, when you came to Christ, God didn't just immediately kill you and take you to be to heaven with Him. Uh, God has a plan for you right now, a purpose for you in this life. He has a mission for you. Uh, You were once a part of this world system that was in opposition to God. But God has graciously saved you out of that world, and too many Christians act like that's the end of the story. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Awesome. I'll live my life. 
I'll enjoy my salvation. I'll hang out with my nice, safe, comfortable Christian buddies. And I'll insulate myself and my family from the big, bad world. It's tempting to do that. Uh, it's, it's tempting to do that precisely because God has saved us from the world and He's given us new desires and new affections and a new way of viewing reality and we just don't feel like we belong in the world anymore. Not like we used to. And so we feel like oddballs and outcasts and weirdos. You are. It takes one to know one. We intuitively know that this place in its current state is not our true home. And Jesus knows that. And nevertheless, He says, as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. Jesus' home was heaven. There was no sin there. There was no hostility. It was where Jesus belonged. And yet the Father sends Him out of that home on a mission. And he sends the Son with all of his authority, backing him up to testify to the world about the truth of God. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. He has rescued us out of the world, and now he sends us back into that same world with God's authority. Jesus in Matthew 28 commissions his disciples to go into the world on a mission to preach the gospel to all the nations on the basis of Jesus' authority. So as you testify to the truth of God, don't be thrown by by some who may say, well, who are you to tell me how I should live? Uh, Your answer need be no more than, who am I? I'm a nobody. I don't come on my own authority. I'm merely an ambassador who comes in the name of Jesus, the King of kings. He has authorized me to give you this message because, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. The Father sent Jesus into the world with authority, but Jesus was also sent into this world with humility. He didn't lord His authority over others. Instead, Jesus took on flesh, took on the form of servant, loving and serving sinners. Indeed, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Now, we sing about that, and we celebrate that, uh, but that wasn't originally meant to be a compliment to Jesus. Did you know that? It was an attack from the snooty religious elites who scorned Jesus because he interacted with bad people. (gasps) They could not believe that Jesus would have anything to do with tax collectors because they were regarded as traitors and men who stole from their own people. Uh, They were scandalized that Jesus would receive into his presence a prostitute. Uh, The disciples were shocked that he spent time conversing with an immoral Samaritan woman with really bad theology. Some of his disciples were people who at one time were so bad they were known to be possessed by demons. Uh, Jesus, though, was not aloof and distant from sinners, was he? He instead penetrated into their lives in a very personal way. And while this designation of Jesus as a friend of sinners was originally an insult, we recognize it as something that's beautiful. Because we know that if Jesus were not a friend to sinners, you and I, who are sinners, would have no hope in this life or in eternity. And now Jesus turns to the disciples, and He turns to you, Harbin's Church, and He says, guess what? As the Father has sent me, even so 
I am sending you. I wonder if you and I, I wonder if Harbin's church could be known as a church that is a friend to sinners, or if we are known as a church that is cold and aloof, uh, maybe with right doctrine, maybe with right theology, but with no love, no compassion for the lost. And maybe you're thinking, amen, Deemer, we're a cold church. We don't evangelize, and we don't do outreach, and we're really weak in this area, and we need to change. Would you agree with that? I think many of you would. If so, you know where this is going. (laughs) My question for you is, what are you doing to change that? Are you a friend of sinners? Are you lovingly penetrating into the lives of unbelievers? Are you spending time engaging with, interacting, finding people? Maybe, maybe, maybe people who are really extreme and on the edge, people who maybe some churches would turn up their noses at and would not welcome them into their doors. Are you lovingly penetrating into the lives of unbelievers? Or are you, like so many Christians, like I am sometimes, too chicken to get involved with the lost? Satan has really done a number on the American church, especially in suburbia. We live in neighborhoods, and we are surrounded by lost people, and we're all crammed together on the same street, and we're all afraid of one another. Maybe we wave at each other as we're taking out the trash. But that's about as far as our engagement with the lost often goes. Hello, how are you? That's not going to save anybody. Y'all, that's not going to get it done. Are all of your friends or all of your acquaintances or associates Christian only? You know, Jesus ate meals with lost people. When's the last time you've invited an unbeliever over for a meal? Met for coffee? Or tried to connect with your coworker on a level deeper than mere shop talk? Are you in a Christian bubble? Do you ignore unbelievers not wanting to be involved in their lives? Oh, that's just too complicated. That's just too messy. Oh, I see how that person lives. I'm not, you know, I see how they live. I don't know if I want to get close to any of that. Thank God Jesus wasn't that way. One writer said that Christians are like a whole lot of people with colds. They're all sneezing at each other, but nobody gets it because everybody's got it. In other words, folks, we've got to go out into the world and find people that don't have it. We've got to go and find the lost, and that's not hard because they're everywhere. And there's not just one right way to do this. There are different means of evangelism. You need to consider your own context and where God has placed you and how God has gifted you and and your spheres of influence and so on and so forth. But sooner or later, preferably sooner, definitely sooner, we've got to get around to sharing the gospel. Uh, Whatever your means of evangelism is, uh, until you open your mouth for the gospel, it's not evangelism. Because at the end of the day, It is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves lives and saves sinners, not merely you being nice to people. Now, you need to be nice to people. God can use that. 
Let your deeds shine so that people may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. But it's the proclamation of the gospel, it's the announcement of the message that actually saves sinners. Paul makes this as plain as can be in Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And guess what, Harbins? You've been sent. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And as we proclaim the message that Jesus has sent us to share, uh, Jesus tells us in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In other words, to anyone who repents towards God and believes in Jesus, you can say to that person, your sins are forgiven. And you can say that with confidence. And anyone who willfully rejects and refuses Christ, you can say, forgiveness is withheld. You and I actually have the right to say whether or not God has forgiven their sins based on what they've done with Christ. So may God help us to see and feel the weight of this mission and this message. There is nothing else that you or I have to say to the world that is more important than the gospel. And more Christians need to be about the business of taking this more seriously. Me too. Uh, we as a church together need to take this more seriously. The task before us is so massive, and yet there are so few who are actually engaged in it. Uh, Jesus himself uh, once said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And friends, as you and I pray for God to send out laborers, will we dare refuse to be a part of God's answer to that prayer by refusing to go ourselves? And you don't have to go halfway across the world to be a missionary uh, to people who will die and go to hell without the gospel that you have. All you have to do is go to work tomorrow morning. All you have to do is consider friends, neighbors, acquaintances in your sphere of influence, people around you. The Apostle Paul says that Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. That's your purpose. That's my purpose, to be ambassadors of reconciliation with a message of peace and forgiveness through Christ. Eternal destinies are on the line. Lives are in the balance. Uh, lives hinge on the message that you and I preach. And I don't know about you, but knowing all that is scary. Uh, that can be a little intimidating. All right, it can be really intimidating. Because what if I mess it up? Uh, what if I'm not persuasive enough as an evangelist? Uh, are you like me? Do you feel so weak? and so insecure and so unconvincing when you share the gospel. I share the gospel with somebody, and, and guess what I'm doing? I'm stumbling, and I'm bumbling all over the place, and they're looking at me like I have two heads. I'm tongue-tied. Uh, people ask me questions. I don't have the answer. Usually, I think of the best things to say to the person about five hours after the conversation's over, and then it's too late. 
I have, I, have, I have this reoccurring dream. It's been going on for years. And in the dream, I'm witnessing to somebody, and I am on point. I'm on target. Everything's coming out right. They're hearing it. They're getting it. I'm just like in the zone. And then I wake up, and I'm so sad and mad. I'm like, are you, are you serious? That was just a dream? Because like, like real Deemer Web is not that good. I feel like that sometimes, which is why verse 22 is so encouraging to me, where we find also Jesus promising his power, promising his power. Verse 22, when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. There's some debate among Bible teachers as to exactly what's happening here. I think what's going on here is likely an acted out parable of something to come. It's a prophetic act. Sometimes in the Bible, prophets would do things that would communicate a, a message that would come to fruition later on. And, and he promises the Spirit, and then if you follow the story into the book of Acts, they receive the Spirit with power. But regardless of how you want to interpret verse 22, the main point really doesn't change, I don't think. Uh, the point is that these disciples are not going to move forward in, in the mission of God in their own strength and under their own power. They will be equipped, enabled, and empowered by the Spirit of God. And the same Spirit that empowered these first disciples indwells you. Beautiful scripture in Romans 8, 9. Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. It's not just people who speak in tongues, as you might hear in some churches. If you are, the, the evidence of having the Spirit of God is not tongues, it's being born again. It's having a changed life. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and how encouraging that is when you consider our mission our mission, which is to proclaim the gospel and see rebels reconciled to God, to see the eyes of men and women open to the truth, to see hearts of sinners that are cold and dead to God come alive and receive Him. Do you have the power to change somebody's heart? Do you have the ability to get someone to receive the gospel and believe it? Can you open spiritually blind eyes to the truth about Jesus? Only the Holy Spirit can accomplish those things in people's lives. And that same Spirit, that Spirit of power, lives in you and works through you. There are so many things we can do left to ourselves and our own strength. You can, I suppose, win arguments and convince people intellectually of the truth of Christianity. You can, you can move somebody emotionally if you're a, uh, if you're a persuasive speaker. If you have powerful words and you know how to weave those words together. But the one thing none of us can do on our own is to spiritually regenerate those who are without Christ, raising them from the dead spiritually, bringing them into newness of life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And what's so encouraging about that is that if that's true, then that means that even the most hard-hearted, rebellious sinner, anti-Jesus person could actually become saved through your gospel preaching. Let that, let that sink in. And, and maybe you actually you know some people personally who are like really hard-hearted, 
and they're just not budging when it comes to the gospel. Well, be encouraged that at the end of the day, the difference maker is not your ability to be persuasive or eloquence or any of those sorts of things. You have one dwelling in you who has the power to change even the most hardened sinner. In fact, the person who wrote that verse was one of them. Very hardened. Very hardened. You would not want to be in the same room with him uh, before his conversion. You might not make it out. So, if that's true, you just can't dismiss all this and say, well, well, no one will ever be changed through my witnessing because I just can't talk good. Uh, That excuse won't fly. That, That excuse actually sounds a lot like Moses in the book of Exodus, doesn't it? God called Moses on a mission to deliver Israel from slavery or out of slavery in Egypt, and Moses has a laundry list of excuses detailing why he shouldn't be the one, why he couldn't go on this mission. And and the problem with Moses' objection is that the objections are all about Moses. They're all about his abilities, his weakness, his giftedness. And in Exodus 3.11, Moses says to God, who am I, God, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And I love God's response in verse 12. God doesn't say, oh, don't worry, Moses, you're awesome and you're going to do great. He doesn't do that. Uh, he, uh, he doesn't answer Moses by, by, by stroking his ego. And conversely, God d- didn't say, oh, you're right, Moses, you are a loser. Well, I guess that means we have to call the whole thing off. He, he doesn't do that. Instead, when Moses asked, who am I? God's answer is, I will be with you. God's response to Moses doesn't even include Moses. As if it's not about Moses. Imagine that. It's as if he's irrelevant in the equation. God addresses Moses' concern by giving Moses assurance of his presence. You don't have to worry about anything, Moses. Uh, Yes, I'm asking you to do this impossible thing, but guess what? I'm going with you every step of the way, and I will make sure the job gets done. And when Jesus sends his disciples out on an impossible mission, he does the exact same thing. When Jesus promises us His power, He's also promising us His presence. That's my final point. The promise of the Spirit is not just a promise of impersonal power. The Holy Spirit isn't a power like the Force in Star Wars. Uh, He's a person. He's God, and indeed the Scriptures call Him the Spirit of Jesus. So when Jesus promises His disciples the Spirit, it is a promise of the personal presence of Jesus through the Spirit, which is encouraging. Because Jesus has sent us on a mission that is bigger and more world-changing than the mission God sent Moses on in Exodus. God sent Moses into Egypt to deliver His people from slavery. Jesus sends you into the world to proclaim the gospel of liberty. A gospel that is setting men and women free from slavery to sin and to death. And and just as God said to Moses, I will be with you, so Jesus says that to us in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is not a promise only to those original disciples. We know that because they didn't make it to the end of the age. They didn't really make it to the end of the century. So this is a promise for us. The end of the age extends into our day. So that means that every time you share the gospel with an unbeliever, Jesus is present with you in a very special way. That's precisely why in John 16, a few chapters ago, when Jesus' disciples are so troubled and anxious and in despair because Jesus will soon be leaving them and, they, and they, they're upset because they won't have His physical presence among them anymore, Jesus comforts them by saying, it actually is to your advantage that I go because if I don't go, the Spirit won't come. And since the Spirit of Jesus has come, He's with all His people at all times, in all places. The presence of Jesus is with our missionaries, Matt and Emily Tyler, as they minister in Shanghai. I hope you got a chance to meet them last week. Jesus is with our ministry partner, Kevin Sanders, as he proclaims the gospel in Boston. We're sending Brother Chike out to London to preach Christ to thousands of people there. And guess what? Jesus is going to be with him there. And Jesus is going to be with you tomorrow when you go back to work and share the gospel with people there. He's going, to, he's going to be with you if you're staying at home and evangelizing your kids, telling them about the wonders of the gospel. And the presence of Jesus makes all the difference in the world. Uh, not, not long after these events recorded here in John 20, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, the disciples began their mission of proclaiming the gospel to the nation, the nations. Uh, these men who were once fearful, uh, who were once cowards, they were, they were anxious and Nervous. These, these men who were at one time, they were locking their doors out of fear of the Jews. We find them later on preaching the name of Jesus to these same Jewish leaders. To their face. You read about it in the book of Acts. Now why? Uh, what happened? What was the difference maker? Well, we know that they now had the assurance of the peace of God, that all of their sins and all of their shame was dealt with at the cross, and they knew that God was for them and not against them. They also were aware of their purpose, that God didn't just save save them to keep the message of hope and reconciliation to themselves, but that they were to go into the world and proclaim this message to the world. Uh, They also had the power of God working in their lives. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, Jesus promised that they would receive the Spirit was fulfilled. No longer were they operating under their own power but they were filled with the Spirit. Here's the other difference maker. In Acts 4.13, it says when the enemies of Jesus, the, the, the people who they were preaching, the disciples were preaching to, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And little did those Jewish authorities know that not only had they been with Jesus, but that Jesus was with them even in that moment. And he is everywhere where his name is preached, even to the end of the age.